Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. Each week, we explore questions of faith, community, and identity. This is Jessica Chen Feng, and I'm your host for this season as we dive into issues of mental and relationship health. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're talking about how Asian America has a sex addiction, including their pastors. And with me is Roy Kim, a former pastor and a certified sex addiction therapist in Diamond Bar, California. Welcome, Roy. Thanks, Jess. It's, it's really great to be here. Yeah. Well, this is a very engaging, interesting, and also difficult topic. And I really appreciate you taking time to share with us and teach our audience essentially what's been going on around sex addiction in our churches and our communities. So could you tell a little more about who you are and how you came to work with issues of sex addiction? You know, I, as you said, I was formerly a pastor. I pastored for eight years. And my transition away from becoming a pastor to a therapist is kind of a longer story, but I did make the transition back in 2009. And as I have now been in this field for uh, 10 years, I've realized that there were some clients who were reaching out to me for sex addiction help, and I didn't know how to help them. Like I, in the intake, I had to just say, you know what, uh, I'm not sure I'm the right person for you. Uh, and I would have to sadly turn them away and see if I can find someone else who could help them. And I decided to be part of the solution. Uh, I received training to get certified as a sex addiction therapist. But here's the interesting twist. When we candidates go through the training, you're, you're doing a lot of the same things that you ask your clients, eventual clients to do. You know, you're assessing for their level of sex addiction, you're probing into family history and all these different behaviors and preoccupations. Well, when I was going through the training, there came a, a, a crashing of my world where I realized, oh my God, I think I have a sex addiction. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I realized that I was in denial about my own behaviors over the years, mm -hmm. including during the time that I was a pastor. Yeah. And, and, you know, if, if you listen to, uh, I, I host a podcast called Essay Speakeasy, where I kind of talk about my first introduction to pornography when I was much younger, you know, like elementary school. And from that point on, something kind of happened to my brain where I needed more of it. And, uh, you know, we can kind of go into the science of that later, but uh, I was on this trajectory of needing to consume those images and to be in those fantasies for me to either feel better about myself or to regulate my emotions or whatever it is. And I was in denial the entire time because there are, you know, like you, you feel that sting of guilt for doing it, especially after having become a Christian. And then, of course, even more so after becoming a pastor, it's like, how in the world am I doing this, right? But then as you kind of pray it off and say, okay, no more God, no more, then you feel like, okay, I'm good. But the nature of sex addiction, or maybe most addictions, is that it comes back full force. There's like this binging and purging cycle that occurs. And I was just in denial about that until it became exposed to me 
during my own training. And so now that I have realized that and gone through the kind of taking the same medication that I would be prescribing to, you know, the clients you know, for, for, uh, in a matter of speaking, I'm aware of how difficult it is for the clients to get healthy, but at the same time, I'm also realizing how possible it is um, given the right types of you know, applications and conversations and structures and things like that. So um, that's how I got into this field. And that's why I actually love this field is because I'm, I'm living proof of it. And I can totally relate to my clients and they know that, they experience that from me, that I can relate to them. And it creates the kind of safety that's necessary for them to really have that buy-in for their own recovery. Wow, that's so powerful. And, and I really appreciate you sharing that. And I mean, it's so much a part of most clinicians' journeys, right? Uh, we move toward the thing that is close to us and um, through the, the ways that God impacts us somehow makes us effective tools to serve in those capacities. So what are some of the common presenting challenges that people come to see you for? Some of the things that occurs, I would say most clients come to me in crisis. Very rarely do they say, you know what, I think I have a small problem and I'm worried that it might get escalated in the future. Rarely does that happen. It's usually when a spouse says, catches them either in the act of either having an affair or uh, having pornography on their phone or their computer, um, seeing chats with you know, other people that, that basically shows that they are being uh, unfaithful. Whatever the case may be, they're in crisis and uh, they probably experienced some sort of ultimatum that you either get this under control or I'm out. So when they come into my office or they, they call me regarding this, um, I'm, I'm noticing that they're in crisis mode and immediately there is a, well, usually there is a buy-in on their part because if, if they don't really go through their steps, then they could lose their marriage, they could lose access to their kids, uh, they can lose, sometimes it's kind of a spiritual crisis too, like, oh my God, am I, am I going to go to hell for this, you know? Um, so usually some sort of crisis occurs and their, their behaviors have escalated so much, maybe gradually and, you know, without their really monitoring it or them really understanding the consequences that um, they've come to this point where they're asking me, asking me for help now. Yeah. So not, not different from the ways that many other clients come see us, particularly Asian American ones, it's, it's usually a crisis. Okay. Correct. Uh-huh. Yeah. So how can we, so I'm thinking about what does it look like to get support before crisis or how do we understand sex addiction yeah. and the nature of sex addiction such that it would get to a crisis? That's a good question. Um, you know, I think because these types of addictions probably started when they were younger, mm -hmm. you sort of build up um, habits that, uh, that work for you. And I, I say work in quotation marks. Um, it, it 
it's often said that sex addiction is compulsive sexual behavior that medicates pain, right? So if you imagine being a kid and let's say there's just a real rockiness in the household, whether mom and dad are constantly fighting or, and you feel scared and, you know, you just kind of lock yourself in your room and, you know, you're trying to figure out, okay, you know, I don't, I don't want to deal with these feelings. So you either numb out with video games or sometimes during that exact time with a perfect storm, you stumble upon some naked pictures or some videos. Well, that's quite a distraction, right? Away from the kind of fear or the frustration or the loneliness or whatever that you're feeling, especially as a youngster. Well, when your brain now reacts to this treasure mine of dopamine that just spikes in your brain, because this is like unbelievable, like, wow, like this is uh, completely taking me away from these bad feelings. Well, your brain's going to remember that. And so the next time something like that reoccurs where you're feeling, you know, frustrated or angry or lonely, whatever it is, I think your brain's going to want what it originally wanted uh, that, that made it feel good in that moment. And so um, it does, it's not sex for everybody. Sometimes it's something else. Like it could be food, binge eating, you know, but for sex addicts, it's, it's sexual images and sexual fantasies experiences. So um, they will keep going back to that and those become habits and you know jessica habits are hard to break right unless someone guides you in a different way it's not just about scolding too it's about really educating and coming alongside them and saying you know i know that you who wouldn't want to numb themselves out when you're experiencing that much you know life pain but you know what um, there is, there, there are other ways to deal with that. Let me show you how, uh, not many Asian kids experience that kind of guidance. Yeah. And, you know, we're not talking about, especially as a youngster, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school, we're not saying to our friends or to mentors like, Hey, you know, I've been looking at this cause they're afraid of, you know, you're getting punished or whatever it is. Uh, if you grow up in the church, especially more so, you're afraid of the reaction. So they're just keeping it to themselves. But you just keep extrapolating that and on into adulthood. It doesn't stop just because you're an adult. It's just, it just, it actually gets maybe more amplified. Um, you're, you're accustomed to dealing with life's pain through that sort of medication. But the horrible thing is that adults especially when you're in relationships, adults count on you to be safe. But if you are doing these things on the side, whether it's secretively or even, you know, you're being a real jerk of being overtly, um, it causes so much damage. Uh, and, but the person on the other side is not quite aware of all this history that occurred, you know, probably since they were a kid. So you mentioned that there's a lot of impact of that these addictions have. Mm-hmm. Say more about the impact on the person's sense of self and maybe their relationships and community. Yeah. 
It's also said that sex addiction is an intimacy disorder. So when, you know, I mentioned about, you know, my, my binge purge cycle that I experienced, which is pretty common for addicts. Um, well, the reason why I would purge is because I was so ashamed of what I was doing. I knew it was wrong. I knew that it was just not honoring to God or to women or to anything. And I would, I would say no more. That guilt um, of, of being hooked on these behaviors that would drive me to start questioning me as a person, maybe my right to, you know, be a Christian, my right to be a pastor, all these things. And sometimes those, that line of questioning would actually reinforce some of the basic thoughts I thought about myself anyway. So when you're already feeling somewhat bad about yourself and then you're doing these behaviors that increase that amount of bad feelings about yourself, mm-hmm. that's a lot of shame to bear. Yeah. But what happens is that when we feel that shame long enough, you need relief from it. What does your brain remember that allowed you to escape from that amount of pressure? Oh, I remember what that was. And I'd go back to those behaviors as a sense of relief from that shame. But what happens when I do those behaviors? I'd feel shame. Yeah. So it's a cycle. It's an addictive cycle. This happens for alcohol addicts, this uh, gambling addicts, you name it. That, that cycle is a universal thing. So how I felt about myself and the impact was it's just a reinforcing loop that I'm a horrible person. Mm. And that, ty- that line of thinking needs relief. The impact on other people is, well, uh, they can think, okay, you are a sick person. Um, they could think you are an unqualified person for anything. You can do, um, yeah, like it could. It, and as I preemptively assume that that's what they're going to think about me, that makes it even harder for me to share with anybody. And so I go back into isolation. And I feel like no one must ever know this. And um, I spoke with a, a, with some uh, doctoral, you know, DMIN students uh, uh, some months ago, and I asked them, "What would happen if a pastor were to say to the elder board, I think I need some help, you know, with my porn addiction or sex addiction?'" <laughs> they almost unanimously said, "That's career suicide." So what's a pastor supposed to do if they have a sex addiction? Well, if they want to keep their job or continue to pastor, then they're not going to say a word. Uh, So it just drives us back into isolation and back into shame. And those are the things that breed more addictive behaviors. Yeah, definitely. Yes. I mean, I can just feel the weight of that shame and it's like this, this really dark, isolating space, and it's so hard to come out of. When you use the term sex addiction, in terms of actual experience, how does someone know they've gotten to the point of addiction? Like I'm thinking, is there a spectrum? Is there a point under which, like you used the word earlier, getting something under control? Uh, What would it look like to have a healthy relationship 
with yeah. sex? I, I mean, that's a loaded question. There's a lot to <laughs> it, but yeah. What are These some are all good thoughts? questions? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, there is a difference between these behaviors being a sign of addiction and these behaviors being still maybe not qualifying as an addiction, but still being highly problematic, uh, especially for relationships and things like that. So it does need to meet certain criteria. And I won't go through all the lists uh, right now, but what you're really looking for is like escalation of frequency, of intensity. You're looking for doing it despite consequences. You're looking at the kinds of uh, feelings that you get when you're not doing it, like basically withdrawal. Not everyone experiences these things. Sometimes they, you know, they go for like, you know, they might look at porn twice a year, you know. Is it great to do that? No. Is their spouse still going to be really hurt by that? Of course. I wouldn't call that a, an addiction, though. An addiction is you're, you're looking for different characteristics of someone who feels like this is compulsive. Like, I cannot stop it. I want to. I wish I could, but I can't. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's some assessments out there, even free ones. Um, there's called the SAST, uh, Sex Addiction Screening Test. And you can, you know, do a search, and search uh, on internet search on that. And that's free. And most people can find out whether they kind of score high for that. If you score pretty high for that, that, that could be an indicator that you have some addictive properties. Mm, yeah. How about demographically? Is there anything you know about in terms of sex addiction and gender mm-hmm. and age? Yeah. You know, yeah. Background? You know, age, uh, I, I don't have uh, too much data for that. Uh, from as, as I've seen different reports on those who are self-reporting in church surveys, uh, it looks like around 65% of males in the church have re- self-report compulsive sexual behavior. Around 25%, 20 to 25% of females mm. report the same. Wow. And not surprisingly, uh, roughly 50% of pastors report anonymously uh, sexually compulsive behavior. So. Yeah. I posed the question to this exact same uh, cohort of uh, doctoral students. I asked them, given that it's so prevalent in the church, what do you think is the impact if this behavior continues to go unchecked in the church? And, you know, we're looking at, you know, divorce and trauma and maybe church splits uh, mad gossip, maybe STDs, unwanted pregnancies, like a lot of things could happen, even going into illegal stuff that leads to incarceration. Yeah. You know, they're saying this, this can really rip apart a church. And then I asked the follow-up question, to what degree are, is the church actually addressing this? Mm. And it was just, I heard crickets, like they're not, they're not doing anything. So there's such a, there's such an emphasis on like worship and Bible studies and family ministries and things like that, but zero addressing of this issue, which if this surfaces in the church, especially if a leader is the one that does this, and let's say this is the leader of the family ministry or the leader of the worship team or whatever it is, it's going to rip apart the entire team. Yeah. You know, so 
but I do think that shame has a lot to do with it. Shame and the fear of consequences. Yeah. Oh, I, I totally hear you. And I, myself and just people I know, their experiences growing up with pastors leaving or leaders leaving a significant percentage of those experiences were around sex related issues, adultery, pornography. And so, so with that, I know you've talked a lot with people in ministries. What do you think is helpful for the church to understand? I mean, there, this is significant, right? 65% of men, 25% of women, 50% of pastors. That's a yeah. huge chunk. So what, yeah. what can we understand better? I think this is not a, a simple solution. Um, I think congregants should be aware that it's probably pretty likely that their own leadership is struggling with this too. So, but I don't think that it's up to the congregation to be the one that spearheads the movement. I really think that it's up to the leadership to do it. It's got to be top down. Yeah. I think, so one of the things that I love the most about my job is I get to host uh, pastors, sex addiction groups. And I just wish that more, like, I just wish pastors by the thousands would be in groups like this. And when they realize that they can get recovery as well, and they can talk to their congregation about that, I mean, I just feel like it's such a statement about the gospel. You know, when Jesus in in John 8 talks about, you know, talks to the adulterous woman who's about to get, you know, executed. And, you know, when all the, the stone, people drop their stones and walk away, he says, you know, does anyone condemn you? And she says, no, right? And he says, well, neither do I, but <laughs> here's, the, here's the caveat, go and sin no more, right? And so, you know, if, if these pastors could realize that they could go to a group and not be condemned, but mm. they can actually learn how to go and sin no more, they can maybe restate that message to their congregation that Jesus does not condemn you for it, but this is destructive behavior. And you need to learn how to go and sin no more. Hmm. Um, and as the pastor says, I've walked those steps too. Let me lead you into how to do that. That's a powerful statement. But which, which pastor will take that risk if it's yeah. career suicide? But I just, Jessica, I don't think there's any other way to do it other than to have that top-down movement. That thing that you just described, someone being able to move toward or be able to say, I see that what I'm doing is destructive to myself and all these people, and I want to move toward it and learn how to sin no more. I'm thinking about all of the internal barriers that are Mm -hmm. present that make it hard for someone to really want to look at that. I don't know if you have thoughts about being in an Asian American context, being a leader in the church, all these things, what might be going on in someone that makes it hard to move toward like an honest uh, look at oneself? Um, I think 
one of the one of the trends that I've seen, especially with uh, Asian American clients who have a sex addiction, is when they were younger, they somehow absorbed the the teaching or the philosophy that they must not be bad. Like they 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 absolutely cannot be bad, or else either big consequences or you know, a lot of parents say, okay, police are going to come take you away, you know, or just, you know, I'm not going to disownment, you know, whatever it is, they, they cannot be bad. Um, they cannot be bad in the eyes of the parents. They cannot be bad, you know, you know, for this honor of the family. So if that's the case, not a whole lot of Asian American clients, I think, have that practice of being able to confront themselves in a safe enough manner and know that there is a a compassionate authority figure mm. who knows them and sees them as they are and embraces them as they are. Uh, they're too used to being scolded or threatened. Uh, so that's the first thought that came to my mind is that they're not in they're not used to that. Mm-hmm. Also, I think because a lot of people with addictions, they're so quick to doing behaviors that that distract them from their negative emotions Mm. their ability to hang in there and to really explore that has been stunted too they're just so whether it's the 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 fear of authority or fear of shame thing going on or it's the the quick i can't like i can't handle this emotion i need to quickly go to something that that numbs me out uh and there's probably more that i can't think of right now but there's just too many ways that I think Asian Americans have learned not to cope with that kind of introspection. Mm, Yeah. Well, as you describe it, I mean, it, it totally makes sense. I think addiction is one symptom of that type of internalizing self and emotion and thoughts, but there's lots of other symptoms that we can experience, but it's almost like a inability to see someone's self as integrated. It's like, I can't be bad. I can only be good. But if when I'm bad, there's just shame. And so almost like polarizing internal world. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like uh, that, that cliche, what you got an A, why no A plus, right? Like you cannot settle for a blend of strengths and weaknesses. It's you have to be excellent or else. Yeah. There's so much more we could talk about because in a previous episode, we've talked about even just like model minority stress or, um, and we haven't even ventured into history of trauma and how addiction can play a role in that. And, you know, a wide range of Asian American experiences, right? From, yeah, but, but that sex addiction is present in all these populations. It is, Um, it is. Yeah. So, you know, we don't want to leave the audience here. I'm, I'm thinking because you shared some very hopeful thoughts earlier. What might it look like to move toward healing around someone's sex addiction? Mm-hmm. What can you say to the listener to let them know, like, hey, even if you feel like you're alone, no one knows yet, or you're afraid to reach out, like, what would you like to say? I've seen um, so many instances of uh, p- 
people who take their recovery steps seriously and especially when they enter into a group you know like i said earlier sex addiction and most other addictions are an intimacy disorder so when they enter into a group and it becomes like a me too culture where they don't have to feel environmental shame in that office they can feel like it's more maybe more of a collective shame which is a bit more bearable mm-hmm. but when they're able to experience that level of safety and they realize wow these people in this room they see me i i i am completely authentic with them they don't shrink away they don't blast me they don't think of me as an awful person but they see me as someone who has this problem and this sickness even that's similar to theirs and we're really rolling up our sleeves to try to figure out how to go and sin no more and that i feel like these groups are so fundamental to recovery because it takes you out of isolation it brings you into authenticity it makes you more aware of what's going on on the inside and when you have that level of community and shame is reduced week by week a person can't help but i guess have a revolutionized life because they're they've been so used to compartmentalizing and so used to being in isolation and secrecy this is a completely new way of life and so what what starts off in this office then gets practiced bit by bit outside the office as well i've seen many people uh find sobriety uh, maybe for the first time in their life yeah and so i know that it's possible but the the thing that separates those who do get sober and those who don't is the amount of work that they put in mm-hmm. the amount of risk that they take to be that authentic but i really find that those who put that work in they get the they get the fruit of that so i really want to leave the listeners with hope that you know everyone is going to have to deal with their shame in one way or the other but man i i i found that people really love their life after mm-hmm. getting recovery because it's not just about not doing these things anymore yeah. it's about being able to embrace their own strengths and weaknesses and to learn how to actually be in relation with other people maybe for the first time in their life. Yeah. And that's a real quality life. Yes. And in in some ways too, especially for those who are Christian, they might finally understand what it's like to be in relationship with Jesus. Mm. Wow. You know, as opposed to being a religious person or someone who's got to put who's who's got it all together on the outside but kind of trashy on the inside you know like they're they're able to integrate all of who they are and experience Jesus accepting them as they are in 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 how it's manifest in the way that the group is accepting them as they are if that yeah. makes sense oh yeah i mean just the the last few minutes when you were talking i can just feel that sense of liberation right mm. it's like this movement toward like more light and more light and I I think for anyone who's encountered that experience where it's like there's nothing within me that I'm afraid of anymore. 
right? Whether for myself or in relationship. I mean, I, I think that's the sort of freedom and liberation that, that God talks about and wants us to totally. have. Totally. Yeah. So I, I am just so, well, I, I think that this is an amazing sort of ministry that you do, Roy. I think that being a therapist, whether I'm a Christian myself and I have my own church community and I know all these things from the church, but we know clinically, right, sex-related issues and addictions is a huge part of what really keeps people from enjoying life and enjoying God and who God made us to be. And so I just think the work that you do is so critical. I'm so grateful for you um, coming today to chat. And I also got to experience the sense of freedom in you, like you just being able to talk about this, about your own experience and your encouragement to the listeners. And so I hope that that what people are hearing from us is a, a hopeful possibility for the future and that that none of us need to live in shame. There are lots of resources. By the way, how can someone get connected to a sex addiction support group? Yeah. Um, so uh, support groups are, they're a bit more rare. Uh, not, not every sex addiction therapist facilitates groups. Uh, however, there are uh, community-sponsored groups. Uh, you know, there's, you've heard of AA. Well, there is a sex addiction version of that. It's called SA. So if you do an internet search of SA or, or Sexaholics Anonymous, uh, those are free groups, uh, and you can find one probably you know nearby your home. Um, uh, if you want to find a sex addiction therapist in your area, uh, you can go to sexhelp.com. Um, that will you can do a, a search by zip code. And um, running groups is one of my favorite parts of my job. And so you know if if someone wants to be in a group with me. Um, they can always contact me for that. Um, and I do know of a few, I think in here in SoCal, I think there's maybe one in Studio City, um, maybe one in Irvine, but I think sexhelp.com has the, has the list of therapists and you can always ask them if they know of a group in that area. Okay, great. And also, can you share your website with the listeners? Sure. Uh, the website is newlegacycounseling.com. And um, they could, you know, they can call me four zero eight six Roy Kim, uh, <laughs> or they can uh, email me at Roy at newlegacycounseling new dot com. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Roy, and we hope that everyone really enjoyed this conversation today. I really enjoyed it, Jessica. I'm so glad that we can have this conversation. Yes. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. This episode was edited by Alexander Cathedral and produced by Jason Chu with music by Mark Redito. We'll see you next time and hope that you remember God loves all of you.